Good morning again. I think I forgot to introduce myself earlier. My name is John Dunning. I work with a campus ministry uh, on the K-State campus called Reformed University Fellowship. Before we approach God's words together this morning, I just wanted to say thank you um, again for the support of this congregation financially, but especially in your prayers for us. Um, As life is strange for all of us these days, um, we're trying to figure out what the semester is going to look like, and we don't have a ton of information yet. And so as Uh, Professor Tim Durant and I were just talking about, it's like we're making plans and we're making backup plans and we're making backup plans because we just don't know what life is going to be like. And so two weeks from tomorrow, though, classes are scheduled to start. And so town's going to get a little bit busier. Um, I'm just going to warn you now, the anxiety level for all of us is probably going to go up a bit um, as 20,000 undergrads descend on, on Manhattan and life gets back to normal in some ways, but not normal in other ways. And we just, just want to ask you to continue to pray for us and pray for the students and pray for their parents um, as decisions are still being made, I think, for many families about what this fall might look like. And so we'd love for you to be praying for us and with us and with them. If you have your Bible, though, this morning I want to turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're going to be considering Deuteronomy 31, the first eight verses of this chapter. Uh, one of the exercises that I love to do with our students um, in, in small groups and in, even in one-on-one meetings is to sit down with a list of what we call soul words, which are emotional descriptor words, and I'll ask a student or a group of students, tell me how you're feeling right now. Pick three words off this list and tell me how it, what best describes life for you in, in, as in these days. I want to do that for us this morning, and I'm going to use the first person plural because we are a church body. We are gathered as one here this morning in the name of Jesus And so whether or not any of these words individually define you, describe you, there's probably somebody else in the room that these words fit. So how are we doing? We are frustrated. We are tired. We are exhausted. We are angry. We are confused. We are lonely. Those words may have come quickly to some of you. But there's another word that, that we don't often, that I haven't heard used much lately, but I think it applies to us, and it's the reason I want to direct our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 31 this morning, and that is this. We are afraid. We are afraid. I think it applies to all of us, regardless of your opinions on anything going on in this world right now, which there are plenty of things I have opinions about. We're afraid of what is being asked of us. We're afraid of what might be asked of us. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of loved ones getting sick. We're afraid of the possibility of getting sick and what it may mean. We're afraid that schools may be shut down and all of our kids may be at home all the time for a long time. We're afraid of loss of privacy. We're afraid of loss of freedom. For for many of us, this fear may be obvious, and for others of us, it may not be obvious. It may come in the form of complaining. It may come in the form of impatience or it may come in the form of apathy. But we're afraid, and I want us to talk about that this morning. It's where we find God's people at the end of the book of Deuteronomy this morning. You see, the Bible begins, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah by Jews, or the the Pentateuch, which means five something, and I forgot to look up what the second part of that word was, but I know the Penta means five. The first five books of the Bible tell the story of God's people, how they became the nation of Israel. In, you see, in the book of Exodus, the second of the five books, we find this, this 12 tribes of people 
enslaved by the Egyptians and put and forced into hard work and labor, and, and for all intents and purposes persecuted for who they are out of fear of the Egyptians. And the rest of the Pentateuch goes on to tell the story of God sending this man named Moses to his people to bring them out of slavery, to, to set them free, and to, give, to make them into a nation of themselves that would be ruled by God himself, by his law. And one of the important threads of these five books is in the land that he had promised all the way back from near the beginning of the story. You see, the, the book of Genesis sort of tells God's people where they come from. But in Deuteronomy, the last of these five books, we find the people on the cusp gathered on the cusp of heading into this land that God has promised to them. And we find them afraid. We know from their history that sometimes their fear has looked like complaining. Sometimes their fear has looked like anger. Sometimes their fear has looked like rebellion. But we hear God say to them more than once, do not be afraid. So I direct our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 to 8. Here now as I read the word of God. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today, and I am no longer able to, to go out or to, and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall, not go over to the, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy the nation, these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray one more time this morning as we attend to God's Word. Father, we pray this morning out of our weakness, out of our frailty, out of our joys, out of our excitements, out of our anxieties. In all of it, we pray that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us and guide us to you. That your light and your truth of your Word would lead us and take us to the place where you are so that we, by your abundant grace, may be changed. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. Writer Michael Lewis, the writer of the books like The Blind Side and um, Moneyball, has talked about the, the impact that his high school baseball coach had on him as a young man. You see, Billy Fitzgerald, his coach, was described by all who knew him, all who know him as tough, relentless, and as someone who always looked like he was going to bite your head off. The stories about this coach grew among the, the kids in, in Lewis's school so much to the point that, it, that he became this near mythical, mythical figure. There were rumors about star basketball players that he got into fights with and coaches that he got into fights with when he was a college basketball player. He, he, he was a big man, loomed over his, his kids with, with great fear. He, he was known that after losses, even for his high school teams, he was, nothing was safe that was in his reach because he would throw it and break it, as happened on more than one occasion. 
But Lewis talked about Coach Fitz, as he called him affectionately, with, with that kind of affection, a fear mixed with, with a respect and, and even hope. You see, Lewis would describe his own self as a, as a ninth grader, as somebody who'd barely reached puberty and whose life was a mess, not because he came from a bad home, but he just simply didn't care about anything. He didn't care about school. He didn't care about what people thought about him. He didn't care about anything. But Coach Fitz came up to him one day and, and pursued him to, to play on the baseball team because he knew, he knew that he had played before and he didn't care much about that either. But after some cajoling, joined the baseball team again. And as a new young pitcher, his freshman year, about 10 games into the season, their team was up two to one. It was the ninth inning, one out, two men on base, player runner on first and third. And Lewis, the freshman, was called to pitch because the coach had to pull the other pitcher. Lewis acknowledges that this was a terrifying moment, but that he wasn't afraid because the thing he was most terrified of in this life, his coach was on his side and he knew that he'd be okay. And so as, as this scrawny, little muscle-toned young man made his way to the mound, the other team watched and began to laugh and even began to dance because they thought, we got this guy, we own him. We've got two players on base, no problem, we can win this game. We can do this. Lewis walked out to the mound and took his place and Coach Fitz walked out behind him and looked at him and said, there's no one else I'd rather have in this situation. And he handed him the ball and he said, see that guy on third? He said, pick him off and get him out. And see those batters waiting to come up to bat? Take care of business, Michael. And Michael did it. He picked off the, player, the runner at third and with all the confidence of a seasoned veteran, he struck out the next two batters and his team won the game. He says that what coach did to him at that moment was hand this messed up, troubled, apathetic little kid a brand new identity. He writes this, he said, by giving me a new narrative, I was no longer a pointless human being. And four years later, when Lewis received the acceptance letter to Princeton University, his first thought was to run to his coach, not in his own words, not to say, look what I did, but to say, look what you made it possible for me to do. The man he feared most in this world was on his side, and he knew he could do anything. As we hear Deuteronomy 31 verses 1 to 8, and in many ways as we hear much of the themes of Scripture, that's an echo of what we hear. We hear God saying to his people, I know that what I'm calling you to is great, far greater than what you could accomplish or dream or do of yourself, and yet I will be with you. He says it over and over again, in particular in verse 6 to the, the whole people, and then again in verse 8 as Moses is speaking specifically to Joshua. The message is that the Lord of the universe, the God who created not just Israel, but who created all things, every creature that would run on the ground, everything that they would eat, the one who parted the Red Sea so that they could go through in safety, the one who provided them bread and even meat when they wandered in the wilderness, the one who had bound himself by oath in his covenant to his people, this one is saying to them, I will be with you. It's the promise of God to all of his people. These words are quoted in the book of Hebrews as a source of contentment for all of us no matter what our circumstances. To say to you and me, I will be with you. What I want to do this morning is I want to unpack that idea because if we're honest, we could confess that pretty quickly. God is everywhere. God is here with us. And yet we still know what it is to be afraid. 
And so let's talk a little bit more about what the text tells us about what it means that God is with us. The first thing I want you to see is that God is with us in the stuff of our lives. Look again at verses 1 and 2 and notice how this passage begins. Verse 1 is simply telling us that Moses is in this long time of, of giving instruction to God's people, which is really what most of the book of Deuteronomy is. It's, it's Moses recounting their history and the laws that God is giving his people. But then notice what Moses says in verse 2. Speaking to all of Israel, all the people who are gathered, he says, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. What Moses is acknowledging is that he's a man of limitations. Now, I think any of us, if we reached 120, we'd be pretty content to say, I've lived a pretty good life, and I'm good to go on. But Moses is saying to the people, I'm old. I'm really old, and I'm tired, and I'm worn out, and I can't keep up with the, the, the duties that are before me on a daily basis. So we're going to pass off leadership. Now, in the world that you and I live in, that's where this would end. That's the press conference, right? The press conference is the, is the person saying, we've come to a mutual agreement. My time here is done. It's time to pass on leadership because there are non-disclosure agreements and such. But, but look what Moses does in the second part of verse 2. What does he go on to say? He says, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. You see, that's the part we don't often hear these days. That's the backroom discussions. Because what Moses is talking about is he's talking about not only his own weakness, but his own failure. Because Moses is a man who out of anger at the people that God himself had called him to lead, took God's purposes into his own hands. God had said to them in Numbers chapter 20, when, when the people were thirsty and complaining and grumbling, God had said, speak to a rock, Moses, to this rock that I'm showing you, and water will pour out and the people will have all that they need. But Moses was angry. He was angry because once again, the people that God had called him to lead were complaining about him and about his leadership and about their lives. And Moses, probably even in a fit of rage, not only against the people, but against God himself, didn't speak to the rock, but he picked up his staff and he struck the rock twice. And God said, Moses, that's not what I asked you to do. God said, you didn't keep me as holy before my people. You didn't do what I asked you to do, and therefore there will be consequences for your action. And he, says, and he said to Moses, you, you will not go into the land that you're leading these people to. You, I'll let you see it, but you will not enter it. Moses is telling on himself here to say, this is part of my story. And God is in the midst of it. He's saying to us, God is in the stuff of my life. God has brought me thus far. God has kept me from moving forward. And yet God is still present even in my limitations. But there's another place that we see God present in the stuff of the life of God's people. Jump ahead to verse 4. Verse 4, as God is, as Moses is giving to the instructions of the people, he makes a reference there to Sihon or Sihon and Og, who are two kings of the Amorites, we're told. Um, back in Numbers, Numbers 21 is where we find the battles that were infused, that were, that, that were there. You see, these two kings ruled over a large chunk of land that the people needed to pass through to get where God was sending them. And, and, and the Israelites actually said, we won't touch anything, we won't steal anything, we won't hurt anybody, can we walk through your land? And the people, said, the people of these Amorite kingdoms said, absolutely not. And then they came out to battle against Israel, and Israel defeated them and wiped them out completely. These two kingdoms, an actual tradition outside of the scriptures tell us that these two kings were actually brothers. So we think of brother kingdoms side by side of fairly large landmass. 
But in all honesty, in the actual description in Numbers 20, we're not given a ton of detail about what happens. More ink is spilled after reflecting on these battles than in the description of the battles themselves. So why mention them here? What I want you to see is that the, 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 those kings that they defeated, the kingdoms that they defeated in, this, in, the, in those events, that's the land that they're standing on when Moses is telling them this. Moses is saying, what Moses is saying to them, not only is he saying, you will, you will defeat all your future enemies the way that we've defeated our past enemies, he's saying, look around you, look down to the dirt between your toes right now. Look at the trees and the grass and everything around you. The place that you are standing on now is a part of the promise of God to be faithful in the future. It's not empty words because they've already experienced the promises of God again and again and again. And in this moment, they're standing on a place where God's promises have held true and God has shown himself faithful. And in these events of their lives, God is saying, I am present. God is involved in in the stuff of our lives everywhere. I saw a sign recently, I'm sure it was online somewhere, and it said something to this effect. If any, it was written by a teacher. If any student in a classroom is using glitter, it follows that every student in that classroom is using glitter. Because if you've ever taught, taught children and had craft time where glitter has been involved, you'll know that without trying, glitter gets everywhere. I remember my first exposure to teaching a vacation Bible school, which was a summer Bible club for students at our church in St. Louis as a new seminarian. I remember teaching a second grade class, and my first night was glitter night. And so we, and all the kids, the 10 or 12 little second graders were seated around the table, and they had a piece of paper, and we were taking glue and making designs and then sprinkling glitter on it, and then you shake the, the, the excess glitter off, and it makes this pretty design. And what no one told me is the truth of that statement, that glitter gets everywhere. And I remember this little girl in particular with her blonde curly hair just wiping glitter off her forearms after this exercise. And I thought, okay, here we go. Glitter gets everywhere. I'm not saying God is the glitter in your life. But what I am saying this is that part of our most basic call here is to know that God is all over every part of your life. The stuff of your lives, big and small, the details, the broad sweeping themes of your lives, God is there. And to try to confine him or restrict him access to any part of your life is utter foolishness because he's intimately involved in every part of your life. Beloved, what that gives us is it gives us the freedom to face the fears that we have. And if nothing else, to see God in the things that lead us to to, to be afraid. What this means is that in your weaknesses, God is present. Even when you sin against him and run the other way, which which is fundamentally what sin is, it's rebellion against the one who's made you and is pursuing you. Even then, God is not absent from your life. Events big and small. The events that got all of us here this morning in this place. I know some of you even are even here from out of town this morning. God is in charge and involved in your being here this morning and everything that got you here this morning. God is present in the stuff of our lives. But there's more. The other thing, one of the other things I want you to hear is not only is God present in the stuff of our lives, but that God is present in the people in your lives. Look again with me at verse 1. It, it's, it's almost, it's, we almost pass over it because verse 1 is so simple. It says, the Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And then look down at verse 7. Here Moses summons Joshua and says to him in the sight of all Israel. 
You see, God is present in not only the stuff of your lives, but also in the people of your lives. It's not an accident, it's not incidental that, he's, that, he, that that phrase, all Israel, shows up here more than once. Because what, he, what he's wanting to say here is that the people are gathered. In no way is this a private moment. You see, this is not a situation in which Joshua had a dream or a vision or a voice told him what he should do and what, God, what, is, what God's will was for everybody else in his life as well. Some of you know people like that. Some of you are people like that. This is not that kind of private moment that we always, that many of us would hear and think, did that really happen that way? This is a public event. It's a gathering of the nation. And Moses, the one who God has spoken to to lead in the sight of all the people, is now speaking to the one who will follow him in leadership in front of all of the people. It's a very public event, and that is intentional. You see, the people there bear a responsibility towards one another in that moment to testify to the truth of what they hear in this moment. Did you hear that? Yes, I heard that too. It's often part of wedding ceremonies to acknowledge that we make public vows on purpose. That when a man and a woman commit to themselves for all eternity till death do them part, that they're promising things that are too great for them to keep by themselves. And so you'll often hear the pastor speak to that issue and speak to, to say something to the effect of, we're here gathered to witness these vows, to help hold this couple accountable, to support them, encourage them as they move forward, to remind them that they are making vows before God, before one another, and before friends and family to commit to for the rest of their lives. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. Public events are vital for us because we need each other, because we're afraid. But there's another aspect of something that happens here. Look, look with me again at verse 3. And notice how he speaks of Joshua here. It says, the, Moses first of all says, The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And then now watch what he says here in this next part. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. That phrase there, when it says, and Joshua will go over at your head, in the Hebrew, it's actually identical to what is described of the Lord initially in verse 3. So when it says, the Lord your God himself will go over before you, and Joshua will go over at your head, those are actually saying the same things. Now, the point there is not to say that Joshua is a God figure, or that Joshua is any kind of deity, but it is to say that God is present in his people, not only through the gathered people together, but through their leadership. That God is present when he puts people over them, especially in the church, to lead his people. One writer says it this way, the leadership of God is earthed in human beings. This is one of the themes, one of the things we see in scripture over and over again. Names that you may or may not be familiar with, but certainly stand out to us as we read the scriptures. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Saul, David, a bunch of kings after David who were more or less not great leaders at best. The prophets who came to call them back. And then ultimately God showing up in the person of Jesus, who was the second person of the Trinity, eternally existing, but taking on flesh and blood to earth the leadership of God for his people. It's God saying, I am with you. We have a profound responsibility to one another as God's people. If you are a Christian, if you are a part of his church, which by being a Christian you are a part of the body of Christ as scripture describes it, you have a responsibility to love the people around you well. You have a responsibility to speak truth to one another, 
to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another, to be aware of one another's needs. And I, I'm not trying to pile guilt on. What, I'm, what I want you to hear me say is, we are in this together. We have a responsibility to admit our failures to one another. Not because we need to publicly shame one another, but to support one another, to grow, to live together in love. But I also want you to hear in this that not only is God, in, God present with all of us together, but by the fact that God has given us elders. That's, that's God telling us I'm with you. Now, I'm not saying our elders are perfect men. They would be the first ones to tell you that they're not perfect. But they're hints for you. They're echoes for you. They're reminders to you that God has put them in your life because he loves you. And because he cares about truth and because he cares about his grace and because he cares about his name. And he has called men to lead his people in, that, in those places of our greatest needs. God is saying to us, I am with you through people. There's one last thing I want you to see. And it's not going to feel like one last thing, so I should probably warn you about that. But it's really one last thing that I want you to see. You see, God is present in the stuff of your life, and God is present in the people in your life. But God is also present in the work that you do in his name. If we were to take the exercise, which may be a fun exercise for you later today or sometime this week, and take these eight verses and, and write out two columns on a piece of paper. Once in a while, I like to be that nerdy about stuff. But take these two columns, and on the left-hand column, write all the things that God says that he will do or has done in these eight verses. If my, my math is right, which is always in question, there's probably 11 or 12 things that you'll find in eight verses of God saying, either this is what I have done or this is what I will do, what I promise to do. Writing them out line by line, that's what you'll see. An example for this would be in verse 3, which we've already read before where it says, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. You're entering a land you've never seen before that scares you because there are people that you're gonna have to conquer. And the promise of God in the beginning of verse three is the Lord himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you. Okay, look again at verse, look with me again at verse five. And the Lord, your, the Lord will give them over to you. Okay, that's another thing the Lord is doing. But notice what comes right after those in verse 3 and in verse 5. You jump back to verse 3. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And then in verse 5. The Lord will give, will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. You see what God is saying to you? God is saying to you that he is at work. He is making promises to take actions on behalf of his people. He is specifically referencing these things and saying, oh, you've seen me do this before and I will do it again. I will destroy so that you can possess the land. I will be at work in your life so that you can take action. You see, as Christians, we, we often ask this question. We hear the commands of God and we ask, well, how am I supposed to do that? How am I, how am I supposed to defeat my sin? How am I supposed to fight against anger and lust and impatience? and gossip, and slander. How am I supposed to keep a rein on my tongue? The Bible actually tells me that I can't do that, so how is this supposed to work? And we often, you'll, you'll find us often asking ourselves, if you're newer to Christianity, well, we know that God does part of this, and I do part of this, but how does, how does that work? And the short answer is yes. 
the short answer here given is God is at work so that you can be at work. God is doing something in your life to change you so that you can respond to his work and enact that change in your life. It's not enough to say God does his percentage and I do my percentage. That is not what's said here. God is making it very clear to the people in this moment, I will do this and I'm inviting you to follow behind me to take possession of the land as I do this work. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but when my son Jack was three or four, he really wanted to help me take out the trash. And and at that moment, as a four-year-old, the trash can could have fit like three of him or four of him inside of it if we really tried hard. It was much greater than he could lift by himself. And in fact, for him to walk over to the trash can with the wheels, to lean it back to walk it down to the driveway would have been an impossibility. But he wanted to help me. And so I let him give it a shot, and he walked over to the trash can and grabbed, you know, kind of stood up on his tippy toes and grabbed the handle of the trash can. And he could barely move it back, and I had to quickly grab it, in fact, so that it wouldn't fall over and crush him because it was too big for him. But he wanted to be involved, and so what, what it took in that moment, I had to put my hands on, the, on the, the handle, lean it back, bear the weight of that while he stood in front of me, his hands also on the handle, and we, together we walked down the driveway. Now, who's doing the work? I'm doing the work because I'm, I'm carrying the weight of that. And yet, he's doing the work with me because he's taking the same steps I'm, st- I'm taking. His hands are on the same handle that I'm handling, ha- the, my, the handle that I have it on, and we're t- taking it to the curb to leave it there for the trash men to pick up the next day. God is at work so that you can be at work. And the message here for us is to know that God is present when we work in his name. God is present in our lives, brothers and sisters. As we act even in the face of fear, God is present. God is present as you make phone calls to one another in the awkwardness that some of us are finding phone calls can be. God is present over Zoom calls for those of you who are watching online. He is not absent from your situations. He's not absent from you as you take socially distant walks with friends around campus. He's not, he is present for you when you meet up for coffee, when you have someone over to dinner or when you go for a socially distant hike. God is present when you sacrifice for brothers and sisters. God is present even as you take action. So what do we do with all this? If God says to us, be strong and courageous, he says to us, don't fear because I am with you, what do we do with this and how does this help us find strength and courage? When it comes to our fear in this context that we live in right now, there are two challenges for us. Some of us want to do nothing, and practically speaking, we expect God to do nothing, and we just say, this is the way life is. So I'm going to shut myself off, I'm going to run and hide, and I'm going to do nothing and just try to bide my time till something happens, whatever that looks like. I'll tell you, that's not strength and courage. That's doing nothing and running and hiding. Others of us, the other, the other danger that we face is that others of us act as if God does nothing and it's completely up to us to act right now. That it's completely on our shoulders. And this will lead to a despair or to a false sense of victory. Either way, where it leads you and me is to think that control is on us. That we are called to bear the weight of the burdens of the world in which we live. Again, I say this across the spectrum. I say this to us. 
I say this to us who have a variety of views on a variety of topics right now, and I know that, but the most dangerous place that we can put ourselves in is to see ourselves at the center of the universe and to put control on our shoulders. You see, the funny thing about this is earlier in Deuteronomy, as a friend pointed out to me a few weeks ago, God addresses those issues. In chapter 7, he says to the people of Israel, don't begin to think that I love you because you're the greatest in number, because you're not. And later in chapter 8, he says, it wasn't your power and might that, you got you, that got you to this place and that will give you everything I'm about to give you. It's not up to your strength. And he even says in chapter 9 that it's not because you were more righteous than all the other nations. You've messed up just as much as anybody else. You are not in control. And yet that is where fear often drives us. You see, without God, we're stuck with our own striving after control. And we need to be rescued from that place to see that living by fear, whatever we're afraid of, whether it's the government or a virus or people who are different from us or people who are like us, whatever it is that you're afraid of, the dangers that can lead you to control. And we need to be rescued from that. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from that. Philippians 2 says this about what Jesus did, and I'll close with this. Jesus was the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, God is with you. And we know that because Jesus entered into this world, humbled himself, suffered and died and was exalted and is now seated at the right hand of God. And the message to us is that God is with us in the stuff of our lives, God is with us in the people of our lives, and God is with us as we follow in obedience. Let's pray. Father, it is immensely too much to bear to think that we could shoulder even a, even a portion of the events of our world and the struggle of our world. And even as you invite us to take action in this world, to live with courage, to live with strength, not, it's this courage and strength that is not of our own doing, but it is your gift to us rooted in who you are and in your presence. Remind us through Jesus and by the Spirit and even as we approach this table now that you are with us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.